thanks for joining us today. It's great to see each of you. It's great to uh, be able to hang out and sing together and learn from God's Word together. If we haven't met, my name is Corey, and I have the privilege of being lead pastor here at Grace Family, and we love being here, and it's great to see you as well. I just want to double-click on something that Mike mentioned earlier about the marriage retreat. We are so excited to be able to team up with five or six other churches for that. And if you didn't get the email this week or you didn't see it, the registration is up for that. Um, and so if you want to register for that, you can go to our website. There's a section that says marriage retreat, and then the link is in there to be able to register. That just popped up this week, and we already have over 40 people from different the five different churches that are connected to that. So we're really excited about it, and we really think it would be a great time for you as a married couple to come and hang out. You'll be blessed by it. We get to spend some time as a church family and even connect with some other church family members from other fellowship churches as well. So I would encourage you to do that at some point this week. We'd love to have you. And so we're going to start our conversation today. We're actually kind of ending a conversation that leads into another conversation. And if you haven't been here or you're, you've connected over the course of the year, what we've been doing is we've kind of been weaving in and out this year of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7 is preaching through to a large group of people. This is fairly early uh, in his ministry. And so he's kind of getting popular and people are excited about him and people want to hear from him. And so he kind of goes up on the side of this hillside and he's talking to people that are decidedly following him. His disciples are there. He's speaking to people that are investigating and kind of trying to figure out, should I follow Jesus? Do I believe what this guy says? And he's also talking to people who oppose him. People that are going to look at Jesus and say, we don't believe what you have to say. We don't like that you're preaching and you're not educated or you haven't gone through the right, jumped through the right hoops to be able to do this. And so he's got this wide range of an audience that he's having a conversation with. And just a couple weeks ago, we jumped back into this in Matthew chapter 6 to a section of scripture that we normally call the Lord's Prayer. And even if you haven't been in church a lot or something like that, you, you've probably heard this prayer in some fashion. It's, it's been out, like you might even see it like on a painting somewhere or something like that, right? We, you, you just kind of, it's in our culture, you might have seen it around at some point. And when we started having this conversation, it's, it's about how we pray. Jesus gives instructions, like Pastor Andrew said last week, on how we are to pray. And two weeks ago, I just started off with this thought. I just said, praying is hard. I don't want to step into this conversation or leave this conversation just having made us think, oh, this is just easy. Why can't you pray? Like, just do it. Like, it's simple. Because in reality, the I think forming words, right, we know how to do that. We know how to have a conversation with somebody. We know how to speak. But the difficulty of prayer is that we actually have to assume and think that some invisible person that we cannot see, we can't hear, we can't see the expression on their face, we can't know that we've explained things correctly and they understand us. We, we have to trust that we just say that and then this invisible person that we can't physically see just hears us and understands us and knows what we need. That's not an easy place to be. And at times it seems like we should do that. It's something that we want to do maybe, but at times it also feels like maybe it's an odd thing to do or maybe we don't even want to do it. I said two weeks ago, and Pastor Andrew brought it up again last week, that prayer can be blatantly obvious but incredibly difficult. It can be obvious that we should pray, and even people that don't follow Jesus or wouldn't consider themselves religious at times will say, you know what, if you're a praying person, pray for me, because if, if there is somebody out there listening, like it's worth it. And so there are just times where we feel like maybe we should pray or we want to pray or we have to pray, and yet it still can be incredibly difficult to either do it or to know that what we're doing is right or how we're going about it is correct. And so 
This, by the way, doesn't get necessarily any easier or better when you're a pastor. Like struggling with prayer is just something I think that is just true for everybody. And and some people are are really good prayers and they just are really, really good at it. And if you're blessed that way, that's awesome. But I, I'll just be honest. Like I think prayer is something that is a consistent thing that we have to keep working on and chasing down to be able to do it well. And so where we landed a couple weeks ago was simply these three things that if we want to have a good prayer, it should be this. It should be humble. It should be honest. And it should be dependent. We should come to God humbly, recognize that he's the king of the universe, and we get to come before him, that we should be honest because he knows what we want, so we should just ask for it, and that we should be dependent on him to show up and to answer our prayers or to at least engage with us in this process. And so as we wrap up this conversation, Jesus, at, in this section of chapter 6, we're going to go to verse 12 in a minute. He wraps it up in a very specific way, and he lands on a very specific topic that I think is very much on purpose, and that we need to dig into a little bit and kind of figure out what it means and how it should influence the way that we think about prayer and even live our life outside of just the times that we're praying. So if you want to open up your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever you have, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12. We'll have all the verses here on the screen for you, or if you want to go to our website, you can go to mygracefamily.church and click on the follow along tab. All of the verses will be there, and if you ever have a question to ask about something that we speak about, there's even a spot for you to submit a question to us, and we will reach out and answer that as best we can for you. But in Matthew 6, verse 12, this is what Jesus says, and forgive us, this is, he's teaching us how to pray. He says that we should say, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Then in verse 13 says, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So Jesus says, hey, this, this is where we should go. This, these are two things that we should focus on as we close out this idea of how we should pray. We should ask for forgiveness and we should think about those who we've forgiven. And then we should ask God for help when it comes to dealing with temptation and the struggle that we see there. And so first of all, I think what he points out in verse 12 is this, that sometimes prayer means we actually have to recognize our failures. Not an easy thing to do. But it's part of the conversation with God. And at times it's hard to do that because we don't like recognizing our failures, right? It's not something that we want to relive. It's not something that we want to bring up. It's not something that we're proud of. And yet Jesus says that part of our prayer time should be recognizing our failures. I remember when I was growing up and even in uh, high school and college at times uh, when people would teach us how to pray, they would give us this acronym of how we should pray. And that acronym was ACTS, A-C-T-S, not like A-X-E, like you chop something, but ACTS is an Acts of the Apostles. And so every letter stood for something and you were supposed to go through this order as you prayed as a way of kind of like getting yourself in the right space as you pray and recognizing that you're not just running to God to give him your request. But the first thing was adoration. So you would adore God. You would worship him. You would say how great he was and recognize the greatness and the power that he has. And then you would get to the C, which stood for confession. And so you would confess the sins you've done or, or recognize the failures that have happened in your life. And then the T was thankfulness. And so you would thank God for something. And then S was supplication. That's the asking, right? So you'd go through this process. And so you'd adore God. And then immediately you would get to the point where you would confess something. And that idea comes to comes from this idea in Scripture that, that Jesus says that we would recognize the ways that we have failed and think about and ask for forgiveness because we have shortcomings. 
that God already knows about, but we recognize it in order to show that we understand that we are evaluating our lives and saying, what do I need to change or how do I need to adjust these things? When I read this, I think about the way that Jesus started this conversation in Matthew chapter 6, and he just says this phrase, right? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. We talked about two weeks ago that there would be religiously righteous people who would stand on street corners, who would stand in the synagogue, they would raise their hands and they would pray. And the reason that they would do that was so that people could see them. People could see how much they would pray. They would see how like the great words they would use and how close they were to God and how great they were. And they would try and show off how religiously righteous they were by the way that they would pray in public. I wasn't there, so I can't tell you, but I'd be willing to bet that they were not listing out all of the things that they needed to confess with God while they were standing on those street corners. Why would you? You would, you would show people your faults. You would show people what's going on in your life. You would show people how not righteous you were. You would be doing the opposite of what they were trying to do. They may have prayed something like, oh, thank you that I am, uh, I am not as unrighteous as these people listening to me, but they wouldn't have been just listing out all the things. They'll be there. That's why Jesus says in that passage, go into private and have a conversation with God and, and do all those things. If, if we're just going through the motions of prayer and we're not stopping to recognize the things that we need to change or we need to adjust or the failures that have been present in our lives as we address God, then we're like the hypocrites. We're not recognizing the things we need to recognize and we're not being honest with God about the things that we're going to work to change and figure out. And if we think we can hide those things from God, the thing that we have to understand is that unrighteousness is always recognized in the presence of a righteous God. He knows. So why hide it? He understands what we've done wrong. We can't hide those things. And so trying to put forth a false righteousness to him or to other people just isn't possible. So Jesus says when you come have the honest conversation with him. Don't hide things. Just be honest about the things that you need to adjust and the things that you've done wrong in your lives up to that point. And then he goes on. Let's go back to verse 13 for a second. He says, And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So he goes from this idea of confessing what you've done wrong and then thinking forward, right? Thinking about the ways that you could be tempted or that could be coming. And he says, even deliver us from the, or rescue us from the evil one or, or Satan or the devil, whatever you want to say, like the person who's going to cause you to sin or possibly tempt you, like deliver us from that person. Keep us from there. What's Jesus trying to help us understand? I think he's trying to help us understand that we can't be righteous on our own. So not only do we have to recognize the things that we've done wrong, we also have to look forward and say, I need God to help me be the person I'm supposed to be. I can't just do that on my own. So when we confess, right, it's not just like, sorry, God, never do that again and just move on. It's, I recognize I've done something wrong. I recognize I've sinned against you and I need your help moving forward because I'm not strong, a strong enough person to continue to do that without your help. And it, again, we go back to this idea, right? Humble, honest, dependent. That's what this is. We're coming to God humbly saying, this is what I've done wrong. Being honest, not trying to hide anything. And we're dependent on him saying, please help me to do the things that I know I should be doing or to not do the things I know I shouldn't be doing because I'm dependent on you because I am not righteous on my own. Just being honest with God. 
There's no standing on street corners. There's no bragging. There's no dishonesty. It's coming before God and recognizing that he already knows who we are. He finishes this portion of the conversation in verses 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, hang on. Let's like double click on that for a second. Let's read that one more time. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, let's process that a little bit. Now remember, Jesus at this moment is not talking to only followers of Jesus. Okay, This is a wide variety audience. So there are people who are currently not followers of Jesus, and there are even people who are currently against Jesus. Okay? And there are others who have decided to follow him, but this is a very wide audience. So he's, he's making this declaration to all these people that if forgiveness is not something you do or not something you're going to do, then your forgiveness for you is not going to be had. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like me, you start to ask some questions. And one of those questions might be, is God's forgiveness conditional? So is this an ongoing process? Is this an ongoing thing where if I'm already a follower of Jesus and I decide I'm not going to forgive somebody, does God then not forgive me? Or is forgiveness for me removed from me because I don't forgive or didn't forgive somebody else? Well, let's take a look in Scripture somewhere else. Actually, Jesus talks about this and kind of fleshes it out a little bit better in Matthew chapter 18. So you can flip over a couple of pages probably if you're in a physical Bible, just scroll down um, if you're on your phone. In Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 23. And Jesus is telling a parable. He says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. So let's think about this. He's saying the kingdom of heaven. So he's giving this analogy, this parable, so that we understand this is how things are going to work in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so this is now, it's talking about people who are followers of Jesus or would be followers of God. Okay, so in verse 24 and 25, he goes on. He says, in this process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Don't forget that, millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. Now, this seems really drastic, right? You can't pay your debt. I'm going to sell you off. Okay, now, this isn't saying that this is how we should treat things today. But there was probably a conversation that was had by this servant and the king when he said, I want to come and I want to borrow the money. There were terms of that condition. So if you have a mortgage or a car payment or student loans, okay, so there's like terms on how you have to pay that back. And if you don't pay that back, there's going to be ways that they're going to get their money, right? So this is the process. And so the servant probably signed on at some point and just said, you know what, if I can't pay, this is what's going to happen. And the king is just saying, this is, it's time. This is where we have to go. And the king's saying, I want to get some of my money back. Verses 26 and 27 says, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. Don't miss that last phrase. It wasn't a, okay, you have another year. 
two years, a month, whatever, to pay it back. He just says he forgave it. It's gone. He never has to pay another penny. He doesn't have to worry about it at all. Millions of dollars he was forgiven. Verse 28 says, But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, grabbed him by the throat, and demanded instant payment. 29 and 30, His fellow servant fell before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Verse 31, When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Verse 32, Then the king called in the man who had, he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he'd pay his entire debt. Verse 35, he says, Jesus says, that, That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive brothers and sisters from your heart. Now that last word I think is very, very important because it implies that when forgiveness is given, there is a life change that happens. This is not, not forgiveness just because it's logical, right? This would be a very different story. If you owed someone five bucks and they said, you know what? You keep it. You don't have to pay me back five bucks, right? And then you go to someone else and they owe you $100 or more and you're like, Hey, I need my money, right? It's, it's like a little bit different. Or even if you said like, oh, you could pay me back just 95 because someone forgave me five. Like that's a very different conversation. The forgiveness of that is very different. If someone forgives you $5, it's not going to change your heart, right? It's not going to be this big, like, it's like just a little simple thing. Someone forgives you millions of dollars or a debt, think about it this way, a debt you could never repay or would take a lifetime to repay and you just don't have to pay it anymore. That would change your heart. It would do something inside of you that would cause you to recognize the value of what you've been forgiven. And so if you're a part of the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is saying is that this forgiveness has to change your heart. And when we see this idea of God say, or Jesus saying that if you don't forgive, like, can you lose it? Because the next question that would come to me is, can you lose the forgiveness from God or your forgiveness from God if you are unforgiving. Can it be gone? Because here's the problem. If you can lose the forgiveness, does your salvation go with it? That's a logical place that my brain goes. If my forgiveness is gone, well, then what happens? So guess what we have to do? We have to look at other places in Scripture. right? When you see something in one spot in Scripture, you're not sure what it says, let's look at it from the whole lens of Scripture. I want to bring up two more passages or two more verses really quick to just show what we're talking about here. The first one is Romans 8.1. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I had a professor in college that I'll never forget. He, um, it, When you go to a Bible college, there's a few things that are kind of typical of you. Um, most college Christian college students are trying to find a husband or a wife. Um, most of them will maybe try think about getting a tattoo at some point, and it's usually a Bible verse. And so, um, guilty. So, one of those things, some of those things are happening. We had a professor. He was a great professor. We loved him. He was great. Um, and so one of the things he said was he would see different students getting different tattoos and stuff. And he'd go, listen, you, you, you know, students that are getting these tattoos with these Bible verses, he says, I have an idea for you. You should get Romans 8.1 tattooed on your forehead. And he was joking, but his point was this verse is so very important for everyone. 
This verse in, is so simple, and yet it carries so much weight. So now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are found in Christ, there is no more condemnation for you. You will not be condemned because you are found in Jesus. And it's that simple. That's the gospel, like, in a nutshell, right? You find yourself in Jesus, no more condemnation for you. So when we apply this verse to what we're understanding about this idea of forgiveness, once you're found in Jesus, there's not going to be condemnation for you because you're found in him. I want to flip over really quick to Hebrews 10. Uh, we're going to read verses 17 to 19. We'll put it up on the screen too. It says, the Hebrew, sorry, the writer of Hebrews says it in this verse, then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer more sacrifices. Verse 19, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying we can do when he gives us these instructions for prayer. That we can boldly enter the holy place where God lives and bring our requests before him. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Once the blood of Jesus is applied, it, it cannot be unapplied. It's not going to go away. So when we see this, we have to understand that, no, we're not going to lose the forgiveness that Jesus has offered us. But the debt that we've been forgiven of has to take root in our heart. And if it hasn't, then what we have to do is ask ourselves or evaluate and say, do I truly understand what this forgiveness is that Jesus has offered me and has it taken root in my life? I go back again. Matthew 6, 5. What did Jesus say? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't be like the first servant in the story. Don't be like the person who has been forgiven so much, and yet we would turn to somebody else and not forgive. Why is this such an important part? Why is this such an important piece of what Jesus is teaching about prayer? Because this is, this is deep stuff. Like this, this is something we have to understand. He's saying when you come, you have to be thinking about the forgiveness that's been offered to you and the forgiveness you've offered to other people. And I think what the writer of Hebrews says is obviously absolutely true, that we can then enter boldly into his presence and have this conversation. But one of the things he says is you have to reflect the forgiveness that has been offered to you. One of the things that bothers me sometimes when we think about prayer is that there would be barriers or things that people would set up for us or for some other people as to how we can approach God. We can only do it this way or we can only do it that way or you have to do this before you pray. You have to, like, the point of this whole thing is that we have been so forgiven and God loves us so greatly and gives us so much access to Him that there is no barrier, there is no wall, there is nothing that keeps us from coming to God and saying, This is who I am. And this is what I need. And this is the relationship I want to have with you. When we understand the forgiveness that's there, those things go away. There's good things you can do when you pray. Like we, you know, close your eyes, bow your head. Why? So you're not distracted, right? Those are good. Going away by yourself, that's good. But it doesn't mean when you're driving, you can't pray, right? You can do that. We have that access. And what's so important is for us to understand this forgiveness that we've been given and then how to share it with others. I want to point out three things that is true, are true, 
of the forgiveness that God offers us. And the first thing is that it is unconditional. There's nothing that we can do that God won't forgive. Nothing. The greatest sins we could ever commit, that we would hope to never commit, we would hope somebody else would never commit, that they don't count any more or less necessarily as far as what God is going to forgive. He will forgive even the worst sinner. Paul says this. He says, I was the chief of sinners. He had killed Christians. And he says, forgiveness is there for me. So no matter what we've done, God is willing to forgive us. The second thing is that we would understand forgiveness as unfathomable. Why, why is that? Well, here's, here's the truth. If, do you think, I, don't, I know I can't do this, do you think you could ever make a list of literally every sin you've ever done? And can you honestly say that you've asked forgiveness for every single sin you've ever done? I'm, I haven't. So the problem is we, we are so, we're, sin is just such a part of us that we can't remember all the sins we've ever done. Can't even think about it. And yet, and yet, God says, even the ones you've never asked forgiveness for, I'll still forgive. When you multiply, you think about your own life, or I'll think about my own life and thinking about how many things that I've not asked for forgiveness for, and yet God still forgives. And then you blanket that statement for everybody that's ever decided to follow Jesus. The amount of sin that God has forgiven, even though it hasn't been confessed, has to be far greater than the amount of sins that have been confessed. And yet he is still willing to offer that forgiveness. The third thing would be this, that his forgiveness would be unrelenting. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like you ask for forgiveness from Jesus and then just everything you've done previously is forgiven, but the stuff that's coming up is not. Like, God is willing to forgive even knowing that he's going to have to keep forgiving over and over and over again. In fact, the parable we read in Matthew 18, the way that this comes up and the reason Jesus teaches this parable is because Peter comes and he says, God, how many times do I have to forgive somebody for the same sin? Like if somebody wrongs me seven times and I forgive them for seven times, on the eighth one, am I allowed to hold it against them? Am I allowed to say, hey, listen, I gave you seven, right? It's kind of like the cat having nine lives. Like you got seven, you got no more. And then Jesus says, no, it should be 70 times seven, which isn't to give an actual number. It's basically just to say, just keep doing it. And then this is why, because God is willing to forgive and he is unrelenting in his ability to forgive. That's the kind of forgiveness we've been given. A debt we could never repay, a debt that God only knows the weight of, and yet still he's willing to give us that forgiveness. So what do we do with that? How, how do we take that information and how do we live that out as we think about this specifically to our prayer life? Well, the first thing is that I think forgiveness should be contagious. We've talked a lot about contagious things over the last year, haven't we? And all the ways to mitigate that, right? Forgiveness should be contagious. When we've been forgiven of something, we should offer that to somebody else. Like when we recognize the debt that we've been forgiven, it should just be an automatic that we're going to send that to somebody else, right? We've been infested with this idea of forgiveness. We're going to give it to somebody else or infected, whatever you want to say. It's contagious. It's not something we keep to ourselves. It's not something we build walls around. We say, this is my forgiveness, but I'm not going to give it to you. We would say, that it would be something we would do. So guess what? We have to be willing to forgive in a contagious way that we would be so it would be so easily given to somebody else we don't even really have to try. The second thing I want us to understand about this is that forgiveness 
reflects the heart of God. It's why Jesus tells the parable. It's why Jesus talks about this idea of forgiveness. He wants us to get that what God wants to do is forgive us. He wants to. Otherwise, he wouldn't have offered his son in order to give that forgiveness. His desire is not to hold our sin against us. His desire is for us to just understand him and be willing to follow him and that he would just forgive it and it's gone and our sin is no more. And so when we forgive others, we reflect God's heart to those that are around us. We show what it's like to be loved by God because we would love others in the same way. I think when you become a follower of Jesus, forgiveness should become a natural reflex. You know what that thing they do when you go to the doctor and they hit your knee and your leg like kicks out? I mean, you can try and keep your leg from doing that, but you're not, you know, you're not supposed to. It's just gonna like it's gonna be able to show that you can't do it. So when you decide to become a follower of Jesus, this idea of forgiveness just becomes a natural reflex. That means we're not allowed to withhold it, withhold forgiveness from somebody else. In fact, when somebody has a knock against us or they sin against us or they say something they shouldn't or they do something they shouldn't, our natural reflex is forgiveness. Our natural reflex is not to hold on to it and to keep it from them because this is very much true that we shouldn't hold a grudge that God doesn't hold. Well, we have to think about this too, right? So when someone sins against us, let's just say someone steals money from you. They've sinned against you, absolutely, and they should ask forgiveness from you. But guess what? They've also broken God's law, and so therefore they've also sinned against God, and they also have to ask God for forgiveness. Here's what we know is true because of what we've just talked about with God's forgiveness. God has already offered forgiveness to them. So when we hold a grudge against someone who sinned against us, we're holding the grudge that God does not hold. Now, there are times where forgiveness can't just be in the blink of an eye. We have to grieve it. We have to process it. But at the same time, we can do that in a healthy way and say, I am moving on the path of forgiveness towards that person because I know that that is what, is what God has called me to do. There's a big difference between a grudge and a wall that we build up and a separation and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm working to make this better and just not being quite there yet. I think what we would be taught to do, especially from the world's standards, is that we would be taught to hold a grudge. And that if you don't at times, you're weak or you've been taken advantage of. And if that's true, then God is the weakest of all of us. And sometimes when you forgive people, are going to take advantage of that. And yet God still says, this is my heart. This is the way that I have called you to forgive. The last thing I want to say about this in understanding, I think that this is true for everyday life, and I think that this is true as we think about this idea of prayer. And it's simply this, that forgiveness equals freedom. You know, when, you, when, you, when I hold a grudge against somebody else, it takes a lot of work. I have to think about what I'm not going to do, what I'm not going to say, how I'm going to try and get away from that person or not be around that person. Or I have to, like, I, my, my mind or my heart is, is occupied with keeping myself away and making them know that I'm mad at them. It's a lot of work. Instead of just saying, you know what, maybe I don't want to be 
in the space with them, or maybe it's good for me to have a little bit of separation there, but I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to forgive it. doesn't mean you have to forget it, but you can forgive it. Because God has done the same thing, and that frees us up. That work of holding that grudge goes away. And here's what Jesus is saying about this when we pray. If we have been the type of forgiving people that God has called us to be, and we reflect the heart of God to others, and forgiveness is our natural reflex, and we can come before God and say, I have forgiven other people the way that you've forgiven me. Jesus is saying, when we do that, we can come to him humbly, honestly, and dependent, knowing that we have nothing harbored against somebody else that God is not holding against them. We have the freedom to come to him and just say, I have forgiven the way that you've forgiven me. And that means we have freedom to engage with God, knowing that there's nothing we need to take care of outside of our relationship with him that we would be in the wrong for. So I have two thoughts um, just for us to leave with this and, and for us to kind of process. For some of us, as I had this conversation, maybe there was someone who popped into your mind that you would say, I haven't forgiven them or I've held a grudge. And I don't know who that would be. Maybe the Spirit like brought someone to your mind or you just thought of them or whatever. There might be someone who you haven't forgiven that you should. And so the obvious step there is to process what does that mean? How do I do that? And that's going to look different. Like that could mean a phone call. That could mean an email. That could mean just doing some inward processing because this person this person could not be alive anymore. And, and so we've got to kind of look inside ourselves. Like am I, am I still working to hold a grudge against somebody that I just need to let go because this isn't right? And God has not held this grudge, and so I'm going to let this go as well. So if there was somebody that came into your mind or your thoughts or whatever that you need to forgive, then you need to take the steps to forgive that person and not hold that grudge anymore. If there wasn't somebody that came up in your mind, then the idea that I want us to work on is simply to work on our reflexes. If you've ever played a sport, and I've done some coaching of different sports in my life, one of the things that we teach is, is muscle memory. right? If you can get the muscle memory correct, you're going to do things correctly more often than not. If you just do those, work on those reflexes, those things you have to do. This is the same way with forgiveness. So have this on the front of your mind. Someone might do something this week that you will need to forgive them for, even before they ask for it. Say, what are my reflexes in this moment? Is my reflex to be angry, to separate myself, to be holding a grudge against them? Or is my reflex to say, you know what? I recognize what I've been forgiven, and so I'm going to forgive them too, because God has already forgiven them. When we do that, we free ourselves up. Don't hold the grudges God doesn't hold. Be ready to come and pray with a clean heart that says, I'm not holding any grudges against anybody. I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. <laughs> Praying is hard. Because prayer is not simply just speaking and being done. What this section of the passage teaches us is that prayer is something and the heart that we come to prayer with is something we have to be living out in the other areas of our life. We don't think about it necessarily that the interaction I have with somebody else over here is going to impact the way that I come to prayer. But it does. So when Jesus teaches us about prayer, he says, this isn't just something that you do at a random time or before a meal or before bed or whatever. It's an attitude and a heart change that 
goes into the rest of our lives as well. So I come back to those three words. Do your best when you come to prayer to do so humbly, to do so honestly, and to do so dependently because of the forgiveness that God has offered to us. Let's pray today. Lord, we are so thankful that you have offered us forgiveness. That no matter what we've done, your forgiveness is unconditional to us. And we ask that you would give us the strength and the ability to be able to offer that forgiveness to other people. I ask that if there's thoughts in this room, if you laid somebody on somebody's heart that, to think about, they've been holding a grudge, I pray that you give them the strength to be able to forgive that person, to leave that grudge behind and to mend the relationship with that person, whatever it means, even if it means just doing some own, their own heart work to be able to forgive that person. I also ask that our natural reflex as followers of you would be to forgive others. When someone wrongs us, says something bad about us, does something against us, that our natural reflex would not be to hold it against them, to build a wall against them, but that we would forgive as our natural reflex because you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen.